Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Mr. Simon Head will join us to discuss Mindless. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Welcome back to the Grok's Science Show. Well, the computer has revolutionized modern society, facilitating all manners of tasks to be completed more efficiently. But is this a good thing? Has the advent of computer business systems done more harm than good? Well, joining us today to discuss this issue is Mr. Simon Head. Mr. Head is a senior fellow at the Institute for Public Knowledge at New York University and senior member of St. Anthony's College at Oxford University, serves as the director of programs at the New York Review of Books Foundation, and has written the new book, Mindless, Why Smarter Machines Are Making Dumber Humans. And he joins us today to discuss this very fascinating issue. Mr. Head, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Pleasure to be with you. Pleasure to have you on the program. Certainly a very fascinating book you've written, Mindless. Would you talk about computer business systems? I'm curious if maybe you can first explain what uh, these computer business systems are. Well, I would say that they're the Cinderella of the high-tech world because everybody knows about the extraordinary iPads and iPods and iPhones that Steve Jobs created at Apple Corporation and which make our lives a lot easier as consumers. But there is this whole unknown world, I think, of these computer business systems which are used by corporations to organize their affairs. They're enormously complex. They're very large systems, and they can be used to to manage the affairs of global corporations. And I think that a great deal needs to be known about them, and they need to be better known in the wider world than they are, which is why I wrote the book. Uh, so how broadly are these systems implemented and how are they affecting society? I think they influence them profoundly. I, I would cite as, as an example Amazon Corporation, for example. Amazon is a, is a huge corporation. It has a very large workforce manning its so-called fulfillment centers. And these are highly IT-intensive insofar that information systems are used to, to monitor and track the performance of employees almost on a second-by-second basis. So you have to imagine employees moving packages from the loading bays to the shelves in these gigantic so-called fulfillment centers, and they have have these computers tagged to them, fixed to them, and the computers certainly tell them what route to follow in the fulfillment center, but they also tell them exactly how much time they have to do it. And if they're behind at all, then the computers start bleeping and they'll be reprimanded at the end of the job. So that's one dimension of these systems. But you also have to imagine them as management information systems. So all the information being yielded by the activities of employees or groups of employees 
is gathered and synthesized and analyzed so that management can have an idea of how the whole warehouse and indeed the whole corporation is working and whether it's matching its targets. So these systems have really a, an origin in the industrial world, but they're being applied throughout an economy which is really not industrial, which is, which is a white-collar economy. Uh, the systems sound very uh, Big Brother-like almost. Yes, yes, that's right. Hmm. Have these systems, though, improved efficiency in the workforce, or are they really squeezing every last ounce of work out of a person justify firings at, at will? Well, I, th- I think there's, there's, there's no straightforward answer to that. I mean, if you look at corporations like Amazon and Walmart, because Walmart employs these methods as well, on the one hand, there's no question that they um, improve the productivity of employees. They're pushing employees extremely hard, as the old assembly line used to do in the, in the so-called machine age. But they're doing something else, I think, which is to create such a, a supervised, harassed, workforce, if you like, that that employees are off balance a lot of the time. Their employment situation is very precarious. They're vulnerable to being fired at will if they don't meet their targets. So you have the paradoxical situation of these systems. On the one hand, definitely increasing productivity, output per hour, but also destabilizing employees so that their actual wages do not rise with productivity. So that's one level at which the system is problematic. I think the other level is when you're dealing with much more complex situations where human beings, human agents interact with one another, as in call centers, customer relations management, it's called, as in human resource management, as in healthcare, as in financial services. And I think when these systems are applied there, then it's much more problematic because these are complex relationships which can't really be managed by these semi-automated systems. And yet this has been the recent push is to place these systems into more white-collar type jobs, teachers, academics. Uh, Yes. Is is it at all efficient or what's the rationale behind trying to shoehorn this system into these type of applications? Well, I think that the rationale is the old one of all industrial systems, that you're trying to get more output from your employees. But I think when the commodities involved are very complex. I mean, I'll give you an example from my own professional life. At the University of Oxford, we have what I would call a an academic production system. We are under the mandate of the UK government to produce a certain number of books or monographs or articles uh, over a year period, let us say, and it's closely monitored. And we have so-called line managers in our academic departments. And the effect of this, I think, is to make it much more difficult, particularly in the humanities, to do scholarly work of great distinction because they're really major works of, of scholarship whether it's in the classics or history or literature, really can't be fitted into these production schedules. And scholars need space to do creative work, and they need space to, to take risks and possibly to fail. And what we're seeing over time is a kind of dumbing down of scholarly standards as a result of, of these systems. So I hope I'm giving a sense of the extraordinary range of their applications. On the one hand, we're talking about Amazon, and we're talking about low-skilled work. 
uh, in fulfillment centers. And then we're also talking about very skilled work in great universities such as Oxford. So we're talking about systems which have an extraordinary wide application. In a sense, it seems like it's uh, just emphasizing quantity over quality. That's right. I, I think it's being the, the origins, if you look at something like university life, it's coming from the government, but the government adopting a kind of businessman's outlook. In other words, academics, like everybody else, must produce in order to justify the public money they're getting. So they want results up front. They want to be able to say to the taxpayers or the electors, look, we're getting value for money. But you, you can't treat very creative work in this way. I mean, you destroy real excellence at the price of mediocrity. Um, you may get more output, but the quality of the output is, is going to deteriorate, and, and indeed is. How has this sort of system started to manifest in, in terms of producing, in a way, more mediocre work and dumbing down, as you say, the quality of output in these other fields in which these yeah. systems might not necessarily be most appropriate for? Well, I think, I mean, you, there are any number of examples uh, and case histories which I examine in my book. Uh, and I think one of the most notorious is what happened with the Wall Street machine, the mortgage machine, uh, in the run-up to the great crash of 2007-8. Because what you had there was an inappropriate use of these kind of industrial industrial systems. You had the investment banks and the mortgage banks on Wall Street using these so-called expert systems to give a, a clean bill of health to these financial derivatives, which in fact were, were not clean at all. They were stuffed with these subprime mortgages, which were de deeply dysfunctional. And the result of that was, as we know, catastrophic for the, the U.S. economy, indeed for the global economy. So these, the inappropriate use of these systems was, I think, at the heart of what happened in from really 2000, 2005 onwards. And it was done in the interests of increasing production. You have to imagine these extremely complex financial derivatives being put together on a kind of virtual assembly line on Wall Street and then being pushed along to the next workstation and each doing a little more to the derivative. And eventually they're sold. But the product which was sold, as we well know, was uh, contaminated. It was toxic, with disastrous consequences. And, and again, it seems like in that case, in all these systems, really the systems are benefiting those at the top, and really the ones at the bottom are sort of suffering, and the gap between the haves and have-nots are, are growing. Would you say I that's true? I think that's right, uh, and I think that, that in a way is what they're intended to do. They are a form of industrialization, and they reflect an unequal distribution of power, but they also reflect an unequal distribution of expertise, because what tends to happen is that the expertise gets baked into the system. We look at a call center, very often, I'm sure many of your listeners have had this sense when they're dealing with a call center, that they're not really having a proper conversation with the agent at the other end of the line, that the agent is reading off questions and answers from scripts, and that is indeed the case. Uh, and this is a form of what's known as scientific management, that the appropriate questions and answers are drawn up in advance by so-called experts, and they're baked into the system. And it's the obligation of the agent to 
conduct the conversation with the customer on the basis of the expertise of somebody who isn't actually present. It's known as scientific management. And this, to my mind, makes for a deeply unsatisfactory form of uh, so-called customer relations management. And of course, one of the consequences of this is the development of what's called the concierge economy, which is that very, very high income customers or banks or healthcare systems don't want to have to deal with this. So they use their financial muscles to ensure that the service they get is good and expert and that the people, the agents at the other end of the line are properly trained. I'd like that to be extended to everybody and not just to very high income people. Well, it certainly sounds like the systems are in place to make the human resource really a cog in the wheel and interchangeable. If they just follow the script, then it's very easy to replace whoever it has to read the script. I, I think there's a very strong tendency, it's a very strong current in the business life, certainly of the U.S. and indeed the U.K., where I am now. And of course, there's going to be diversity in a huge economy. The U.S. was getting on for 200 million employees. I'm simply describing what I think is a powerful and possibly dominant trend. But of course, it can coexist with ways of doing things which are different. And certainly, if you go overseas to Scandinavia or Germany or the Netherlands, you will find the same thing. You will find diversity. So there is diversity. I'm not saying that this is the way things have to be done, but I think that they are done this way much more often than they should be. And I think that people need to be aware of that. And through the democratic process, they have to make their opinions felt. Do you think economic forces will shape which of these uh, types of uh, systems will win out, whether it's the scientific management approach or, or the perhaps more human approach? That's, that's a very, very interesting question. I, I, I'm not at all convinced that, can, that it can be done through market forces because it's cheap. If you do things this way, it's low cost. And, uh, and of course, you, you may have to pay more if you want better service. And to the extent that the majority of people, certainly in the US and the UK, are suffering a kind of long-term stagnation in their real incomes, maybe people will uh, tolerate poor service in the interests of economy. Uh, I don't know. So I do think there has to be a political dimension to this uh, and not simply um, the operation of market forces. So uh, is there any way out of this situation? Well, I try to outline what it is, and I think, I think it has to be political. Once you get into the political area, you get into great volatility because if you look at history in a rather broad context, the reaction to the first Great Depression in the 1930s was a progressive one. It was the rise of the New Deal, the rise of unions and the National uh, Labor Relations Act, which was the foundation for really an area, of, uh, a period of relative equality in the United States in the late 30s during the Second World War and 30 or 40 years after the Second World War. The situation now is, is much more volatile because you can argue that the main political response to what's happening is actually on the right, it's the Tea Party. The Tea Party is a conservative movement, it's, it's a libertarian, it's certainly very hostile to liberalism, but it's also hostile to big business. I mean, the, the Tea Party people did not like Mitt Romney, for example, 
as an example of, 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 of kind of corporate schmoozing. So I'd say the politics of inequality and the politics of these systems is very, very unstable and volatile at the moment. We just don't know how it's going to work out. But I think that anybody who is of a progressive bent, and that's what I say in the final chapter of the book, has to make their voice felt. It's no good complaining about the Tea Party if you're on the progressive side. You have to speak up and fight for what you believe. Certainly part of it also is making the the fact that these systems are being so widely used and applied to all these other areas part of the agenda. Yes. Well, I think the really important thing is people be aware of what's going on. And I think one of the points I make in the book is that the big difference between what happened in, in the first machine age in the late 19th century and early 20th century when people understood uh, what was going on in the factories. They understood the darker side of capitalism and it gave rise to labor movements, social democratic movements. It, it gave rise to the social gospel movement in the United States, which came out of the, the churches. And it, it, it gave rise to the progressive movement of Theodore Roosevelt at the beginning of the 20th century and, of course, leading to, to FDR and the New Deal. Uh, uh, one of the foundations of, of this progressivism both in Europe and the United States, was a clear understanding of the harsher and more oppressive side of capitalism. And I think that what we need now is, is to have a, a, a comparable sense of what's going on. We, we need not only to understand the enormous creativeness of these systems and that they can indeed increase productivity, but we need to have an understanding of their darker side as well. Uh, we need both. Well, I certainly think your uh, book goes a long way towards bridging that gap and informing the public. The new book is Mindless, uh, Why Smarter Machines Are Making Dumber Humans, and the author is Mr. Simon Head. And, uh, Mr. Head, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Well, I much appreciate the invitation, and I've enjoyed the conversation. Thank yeah. you. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.